This is a recording of a Bible study given at the chapel of the opened book under the covering title of the Pleroma and is number eight of the series. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together and those of you who are listening to this recording, you may like to switch off while you, together with us, read together the first chapter of the prophecy of Ezekiel. I think every one of us, as we've read this chapter, will admit that it is a very complicated and rather awe-inspiring passage. There's much in it that baffles us. We cannot believe that it doesn't mean anything. We can only feel there are suggestions here of a mysterious agency under the control of God, doing his work, going, coming, as the Spirit directs, no rebellion, no strikes, no working to rule that isn't the rule of God. That agency is here right at the beginning. It's still at work and it will go on until the goal is reached. Complicated imagery, these living creatures. It's a good thing we've got the word living creature here because in the book of the Revelation we have four beasts, which is a mistake. There is one beast in the book of the Revelation and that's the true translation, a wild beast. But the four living creatures should be the translation of those similar beings that we have here. You notice also there's a reference to the firmament above their heads. We've got the firmament on our chart that we have here in the ordinary way. The smaller, limited, uh, as it were, heaven, according to Genesis 1 verse 6. You might be interested to know that the word amber that comes in this chapter and is repeated again in the Septuagint version is the word electron, which gives us the word electricity. And so there's so many things here that we could ponder over. What these rings are. What these wheels are. The passage which is a wheel in the middle of a wheel. Or as sometimes we say, wheels within wheels. A complicated pattern being worked out, but superintended by wisdom, which is divine. Well now, you're, it's obvious then that this is our subject for this evening. Not necessarily spending our time on Ezekiel 1. We are going back to the book of Genesis. Our subject is the Pleroma. Now the Pleroma is God's counter-move and a series of counter-moves to the devastating attack of the enemy. We found that when this world had become apparently ruined because of some fall that took place before man, God's answer was to place a man on the earth in the likeness of his image and said replenish, that's the word pleroma, replenish, start filling. But man failed, not that God failed, because man was only a likeness. The first man is of the earth earthy, the second man is the Lord of heaven. The first Adam is of one character. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. So, he was there as a pledge and a picture. 
Now it would not be possible in these meetings to do justice to all the passages that await us. Whatever can we do when we have so many wonderful things in Genesis 1, 2 and 3? Why we should be here for an unlimited time? So, I'm going to ask you to consider just briefly in your mind without turning to chapter and verse what leads up to the cherubim in this first story. Man has been put into the garden but he is an accountable being and as an accountable being it was not possible to say whether he would stand or whether he wouldn't. It could only be proved and consequently there was put into the garden everything that was necessary for him. There was no dearth. It was absolute fullness for every possible need and then one limitation. Now some people, when they read about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they boggle at the word evil. But why not boggle at the word good? It doesn't say it was a tree of evil. It was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now if you like to look up a passage in the life of David, I forget the chapter at the moment, but somebody came to him and said, Oh, thou must know good and bad, good and evil. You're like an angel of God. And then when the woman repeated it, she said, Oh, thou dost know all things. You're like an angel of God. You see, if you have a knowledge of good and evil, you know all things. It wasn't tempting to evil. It was merely a prohibition. Don't reach out to universal knowledge while you're still an infant. But said the evil one, Oh, no, no, no like he did in the days of Job. Oh, doth God, doth Job serve God for naught? See, you give me a chance and I'll show you, he said to God. And so he said to the woman, Oh, now hath God said, you should not eat of every tree? Is he put it that way? Instead of saying, what a, what a wonderful provide, provider you have in your gracious God. He's giving you all this Freely, with one little tiny reservation. He didn't put it that way. And of course that started the whole thing ticking. And you know the dreadful consequences. Well now I want you to turn to Genesis 3, just to pick up one theme, which I think will be enough for us this evening. I heard from one lady last week, who used to come to the Sunday afternoon meetings, and I rather used to... uh, trifle with her a little bit, because she had a dreadful fascination for the cherubim. And she was very disappointed when I said to her, well, there's a possibility you'll never see the cherubim. Oh, she says, I'm looking forward to it. But I said, they're symbolic creatures that may fulfill their purpose and have no relation to your blessings at the right hand of God far above all their work will be done. I don't know whether you'll ever see such a thing. I did a letter to me just this last week in which she sent a little contribution to the funds, she's still hoping to see the cherubim. So I said, well, we're dealing with the pre-Roma. If you could only come along on Thursday, you might get a bit more introduction to them, but she's living too far away and can't manage it. So here we are. That's our subject, the cherubim. Now, have you got Genesis 3 in front of you? Well, when you look at this, the first verses, or the first verse, opens with a reference to a serpent that was evidently not just only that animal 
It was a spiritual being investing an animal form either for symbolism or for some other drastic, dreadful purpose. We are told later on that that old serpent is the devil. That's the New Testament word. And Satan, that's the Old Testament word. And so we have here the devil or Satan in the form of a serpent. Now if you look at the end of the story, after the work's all over, you have cherubim in the last verse. Now it doesn't stop to explain what the cherubim look like. But in Ezekiel and other passages, you're told that the cherubim were fourfold. They had the face of a man, of a lion, of an ox, and an eagle. So you have animal forms, but they're in the spiritual intention. Now they're balanced, aren't they? Here's a chapter that opens with something we know very little about. The possibility of a spirit being using an animal form. That's an evil one. And at the other end we have God's answer. A spiritual intention symbolized and set forth by animal forms. Just God's counter move. The cherubim is God's counter move to the invasion that was made into the dominion made by man. Given to man. What was the dominion given to man? Dominion over the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, the cattle. You see? And what does the cherubim represent at the garden? It represents man and the dominion given to him. When Adam was expelled from the garden, he knew that he'd lost life, that he was being given a certain amount of time, but he was ultimately to return to the dust. He looked there and he saw the dominion that he'd forfeited and lost still standing in the garden. A man, a lion, an ox, an eagle. And he saw something else. He saw a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Now it wasn't there to keep somebody away from it. Although Adam was forbidden or not allowed to stretch forth his hand and perpetuate himself as an eternal sinner. You remember? Now lest he put forth his hand and eat of the tree of life and live forever, he turned out the man. So it was an act of mercy and grace to turn him out. God was actually overriding and making impossible what the general traditional teaching says. The traditional teaching says man is an immortal sinner. And God says, I'll never have such a thing in my creation. He prevented man from being an immortal sinner. Blessed be God. Immortality is going to be given to him as a believer and a redeemed child of God. Not like Adam. Living on and on and on and never coming to an end with no hope. No, God wouldn't allow that. So, this when it says to keep the way of the tree of life is to safeguard it. To safeguard it. You'll find the same word in chapter 2, 15, just to refresh your memory. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden to dress it and keep it. Not really dress it, but to safeguard it, keep it. There was a, the word indicates to be on the watch that there may be an enemy. So here it is being preserved. And then we go right through the scriptures, right through the Old Testament, right through the New, till we get to the last chapter. 
And then there's a right, a right to the tree of life. Then it is, God hasn't forgotten it. In all the ups and downs, in all the wheels that are within wheels, he never forgot it. He was making for that all the time. That what was forfeited or lost by sin will be more than restored by redeeming love. There's also the thought in uh, the sword, which always appeals to me. Here we have a flaming sword, keeping the way of the tree of life. And one day, the prophet Zechariah said, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, the man that is my fellow. That sword was sheathed in the heart of Christ. And the blood that was shed removed the barrier and will ultimately give access to the tree of life and all that it involves in the glorious future. One of the first things that I would like you to notice is that here we have one of the earliest indications of the redemptive element that's going to be going to pursue right through in the last verse of this chapter. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. The word placed is in the Hebrew language shaken. We spell it in the English letters S-H-A-K-E-N but it's nothing to do with the word shake. Shaken. Now the word tabernacle is the word mishkan. And in the Hebrew, an M in the front of a word often indicates the word place or thing. It's a dwelling thing or a dwelling place or, as it's translated over and over again later on, the tabernacle. So the literal rendering of this verse is he placed as in a tabernacle at the east of the garden the cherubim. And presently he was going to have a literal tabernacle and the cherubim will be there. And then ultimately in the last book that's coming, the tabernacle of God is with men. Oh, it's pursued right the way through, not forgotten, from Genesis 3 to the end of the last book. Isn't it good to know that God is not diverted? He goes on. We get so complicated with regard to the issues that sometimes we miss our way, but he never so here we have a consistent Bible and a consistent plan, Genesis, starting, Revelation, completing. All the work through, wheels within wheels they may be, dreadful as Ezekiel said they appeared, yet a comforting thought. When he was describing those mighty beings and their wings and what not, he suddenly, suddenly said, and they had hands like a man. I wonder what the hands of a man were doing there. A man's hands are very indicative of the peculiar character of man, in spite of the fact that some people will tell you otherwise, if you'll examine our so-called progenitors in the zoo, you'll find them walking about on their knuckles, and they haven't got a thumb. They haven't got a thumb, not, not, not like a man has. They cannot use it like a man does. A man or a woman can pick up a thing like that, but you'll wait for a long time to see one of those early progenitors of the human race pick anything up like that. 
30 foot. A man's hand. And so we've got now the hand of a man. Then at the end of the chapter, I saw the likeness of the appearance of a man upon a throne. So in spite of all the wonder of it, all the mystery of it, all the inexplainable part of it, thank God there's a man there that's uniting it all together. And I don't think you and I have very much problem as to know who that man is that's on that throne. He's the man of Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman that's going to bruise the serpent's head. He's the man that we see right the way through until at last he appears in all his majesty, the son of man coming with the angels to take the kingdoms of this world. So we've got this this thought in front of us. Here we have the cherubim. And we suggest that the cherubim indicates so far as their description is concerned here, the dominion that Satan uh, managed to cheat man from at the beginning, which is held in store, reserved for him, preserved for him by redemption, and ultimately to be enjoyed. Now the next thing is this. We go to the book of Ezekiel, as we did, and we'll find that that book is very much associated with the cherubim, not only in the first chapters, but in the last chapters, and also one great passage in between. Now you may have said to, you may say to me, and rightly so, that the word cherubim does not occur in Ezekiel 1. But you do remember that he saw this vision by the river Kiba. So if you will turn to chapter 10, Ezekiel himself will tell you that that is what they were. Why he reserved it for that chapter, I don't know. He may not have known himself. It says, in chapter 10, he saw these wonderful things all over again. I won't stop to read it because of our time. So we'll pick it up at verse 14. And everyone had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub. That's a little change. And the second face was the face of a man. And the third, the face of a lion. And the fourth, the face of an eagle. And the cherubim were lifted up. This is the living creature that I saw by the river of Kiva. So he's telling you. So the living creature that he saw at the river of Kiva are the cherubim. Well, that's so far. That's one little bit then. What is the meaning of the word cherubim? Well, there we enter into a debatable subject. You see, when you've got one word, to describe something which you know very little about. In an ancient language, there's always possibility of making a mistake. You know, friends, even I can make a mistake. Did you know that? All right, if you'll be prepared for that, I'll tell you as far as I've got. First of all, strictly speaking, none of us ought to say cherubims with an S on the end. Because I-M is the equivalent to the word S. You don't say cherubs, you say cherubim. I am is plural. So you don't say cherubims because you can't have two plurals, but it doesn't matter. They won't mind if you still say cherubims, you see. 
Now, Ki, K-I, in the Hebrew language, means like, or as. And Rab means greatness, mightiness. And the cherubim are saying, we represent or are like the glory, the greatness. And when you get to know the history of the cherubim, and the reason why they come into it, that there was one who was called the cherub, who said, I will be like the Most High, I will set my throne above the stars, you begin to see why they have that name. He may have been given this position, to be like the Most High, but not to put out his hand and rob God of his prerogative. Man is made like God, but a moment a man sits in the temple of God showing himself that he is God, he becomes a son of perdition and he's doomed. So now we are touching very wonderful things about which we know very, very little. We can only gather hints far away from the scriptures, but they may help us. Now the first few chapters of Ezekiel are occupied by these wonderful beings, but there's something that's happening all the time. They're not merely standing there doing nothing. You find as you read these chapters that the glory of the Lord is gradually leaving Jerusalem and the temple. And you discover that it's going slowly from the temple itself to the court, from the court to the outer gate, from the outer gate onwards until at last it disappears and leaves Jerusalem and its temple empty of the presence of God. And then when you come to the last chapters, chapter 43 onwards, if you'd like to turn to that in Ezekiel, Chapter 43, it all comes back again in the same order. Afterward he brought me to the gate, even the gate that looked toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. And his voice was like the noise of many waters, and the glory and the earth shined with his glory. And it was according to the appearance of the vision which I saw, even according to the vision that I saw when I came to destroy the city, and the visions were like the visions that I saw by the river Kibar, and I fell upon my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate, whose prospect is toward the east, and so the glory, which had been long absent, comes back with these cherubim, and fills the house of God once more with his glory. So we have their restoration. And the last statement in the book of Ezekiel is that the Lord is there back again. Well now that's not the whole of the story because the prophet Ezekiel has a reference to some one person who was called a cherub. I'm not sure whether my mother ever called me one when I was, uh, she may have done but I think she soon changed her mind as time went on. But we're going to see someone who was never a son of man. We're going to see someone who never descended as we have from the first man, Adam. 
So we'll turn, shall we, to Ezekiel, the 28th chapter. It's a most difficult passage. In fact, the whole of Ezekiel is a difficult book to deal with. We're doing the best we can within our limitations. I think I've told you once before that the end of a rather inexhausting meeting once, when I'd given everything I'd got and I wanted to just sit down for a moment, a lady came up to me and said, oh, would you mind me asking you one question? So I said, well, what is it? She said, well, could you just put into a nutshell uh, the key to the prophet Ezekiel? So just before I passed out, I just murmured the word cherubim and left it with her. Well, I think if you've, if you've got the meaning of the word cherubim at the beginning and at the end and in between, you've got the key. So now we're going to look for a moment at chapter 28. Chapter 28. The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyre, Thus saith the Lord God, Because thine heart is lifted up, and thou hast said, I am God, I am a God. I sit in the seat of God, in the midst of the seas, yet thou art a man, and not God, though thou set thine heart as the heart of God. Behold, thou art wiser than Daniel, and there is no secret that they can hide from thee. With thy wisdom and with thine understanding, thou hast gotten thee riches, and hast gotten gold and silver into thy treasures, and by thy great wisdom and by thy traffic, Hast thou increased thy riches, and thy heart is lifted up because of thy riches? Therefore thus saith the Lord God, because thou hast set thine heart as the heart of God, behold, therefore I will bring strangers upon thee, the terrible of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of thy wisdom, and they shall defile thy brightness. Notice the words beauty, wisdom, brightness. They shall bring thee down to the pit, and thou shalt die the deaths of them that are slain in the midst of the seas. Wilt thou yet say before him that slayeth thee, I am God? But thou shalt be a man, and no God in the hand of him that slayeth thee. Thou shalt die the deaths of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers, for I have spoken it, saith the Lord God. A terrible statement to be made about a, a king who because of the riches and apparently the wisdom and the strength of his position toppled over and dared to make this blasphemous claim. But he was a man, says so, however much he aspired. Well, now it starts all over again, verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. Well, this other one's the prince of Tyre. Well, who's the king of Tyre? Well, it may have been his father. But it may have been his father spiritually, not literally. It may be that the prince of Tyre on earth was only foreshadowing what the king of Tyre, whoever he may be, had done. Let's go on. Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sun, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. Sealest up the sun, the perfect pattern as it's been rendered. Someone who was not merely a copy of somebody else, but almost the pattern for all, as it were, to range under. Thou sealest up the sun. 
full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. If that could have been said of Adam, it could never have been said of any of his descendants. For sin had come in and marred whatever beauty and wisdom they had, but I don't believe it could ever have been said of Adam. But here was a being that God addressed with this title. Now it says, Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Well, we know the we know the names of the folks who were in Eden, so far as the scripture is concerned. God walked in the cool of the day in Eden, the garden of God. And Adam was there, and Eve was there. But their children were born outside. Well, who else was in Eden, the garden of God then? Oh, there's only one. A serpent. Is that this one? We'd better look a bit further. Let me stop for a minute. The Hebrew word for serpent, nachash, means a shining one. And you remember that the brazen serpent, which of course would have been a shining one too, was preserved as a memorial of God's grace and saving Israel, then became an object of idolatrous worship, so that one of the kings of Israel said, Nahushtan, a piece of brass, that's the word Nahesh, just like that. See, brazen, shining. Ask yourself whether what I'm going to read now is a description of a shining one. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardius, topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, and gold. What a description of a being. You can say to yourself, why this is almost like the breastplate of Aaron the high priest, or the stones in the New Jerusalem. Yes, friends. The one that's been described here had some relationship to high and holy things. And the next statement says, Thy tabrets and thy pipes were prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. Now, tabrets and pipes have to do with instrumental music. When I first read it, I had a feeling it meant these intestines or something, these pipes. But it means instrumental music. He was someone who was at the very front and lead of the worship of God. Do you know what it says in Hebrews 1? When he bringeth the only begotten into the world, he saith that let all the angels of God worship him. And this one, as far as we know, started a rebellion. I'm only guessing. It's left. But it may have been that was the revolt. He would not. He would not accept this purpose of God vested in that one whose name is the Word and the image and the brightness of his glory. And so the revolt began. Even poor creatures like ourselves if we fall into sin, we are apt to tempt our fellows by the very self same thing that caused our fall many a time. The proverb of the world is, you set a thief to catch a thief. And when this serpent came to man, the very first thing that he did was to bait his temptation with a thing that caused his own fall. And what was that? You shall be as God. That's Genesis 3. You shall be as God. And so we've got something here. 
Now we have the statement made, Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. Three words here. Anointed. This is the word that means the Messiah. It could have been translated. The Christ, if it were in New Testament language. Here is someone who has the very name of the Messiah. The anointed. Long before Christ came. He had that office. The anointed one. And he was the cherub. That covered This word cover comes in the construction of the tabernacle. With regard to the curtains. And the gates. And the various parts. Of woven fabric. Here was one that had to do with the. Worship of God. With access into his presence. The curtains and the veils. Being associated with access or prevention of access. It's only a light being let in upon something that's beyond our full understanding. But it's here for a purpose. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God, and thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Whatever that means we may not know. But it's not the idea that Ordinary human beings, say, like Adam in the Garden of Eden, was walking up and down on the stones of fire. You don't get such a thought there. This is something supernatural. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created. So it's a created being. A created being that was perfect when he left the hand of his maker. Till iniquity was found in thee. So God has no relationship to the iniquity that developed. It was found in him. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence. Now you say, well, merchandise, you don't tell me that Satan, if this is Satan, was trading. But friends, he was. The word merchandise and trading and traffic, when once they're introduced into spiritual things, has an awful sound about it. Making traffic of truth. Never heard of it. That's what he did. For his own ends, he trafficked in that which was a sacred trust. They have filled the midst of thee with violence and thou hast sinned. So he is someone who sinned. Who was in the Garden of Eden. And it wasn't Adam. Sinned. Therefore I will cast thee as profane. That's the alternative and opposite word to the word holy and sacred. I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God. And I will destroy thee. Dreadful word, isn't it? To be said of any being, however humble, but of this magnificent and mighty being. I will destroy thee, all covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. Beauty. Wisdom. Brightness. Wonderful words. Some of them are echoed in the New Testament of Christ. The brightness of his glory. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings and they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities. 
by the iniquity of thy traffic, therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee. What's that mean? When we come to the book of the Revelation, if this is a picture of Satan at the beginning, the book of the Revelation gives a picture of Satan at the end, and we find that he's cast into a lake of fire. That seems to be external to himself. This says that it's brought forth from within him, and there may be a truth from both points of view. His very sin carried with it its doom. And I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth, in the sight of all them that behold thee. All they that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee. Thou shalt be a terror, and never shalt thou be any more. Now there's a statement made. It's put into the scriptures which are written for our learning. And whether we understand it, whether we've interpreted it right or not, we can't believe that it's not put there for a purpose. And so we've got the cherubim at the beginning and the end, the glory of God leaving, the glory of God coming back, and then right in this passage, the cherub that was before them all, antedated them all. Well, now we want to take this a stage further. If you notice the chart, I've put that at the top. Ezekiel 28. The anointed cherub, the claim, I am God, cast out as profane. The next one is Genesis 3, which we've just looked at. Paradise lost. We have there the tree of life lost, the word altered, the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the woman, and the conflict starting. Well, now the cherubim find a place in Israel's economy. Will you turn to Exodus 25? so that we may see for ourselves the next occurrence of these curious, wonderful beings. Exodus 25 And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring an offering of every man that giveth it willingly, with his heart he shall take my offering. Then he specified all the various materials that are necessary, verse 8, and let them make me a sanctuary, this other being that defiled the sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. Here we have the dwelling sought by God again. Dwelling, and dwelling as in a tabernacle. In Genesis 3 we have the first reference to a tabernacle, that is, a pledge. In John 1.14 we have the fulfilment. For it says the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. Same word. Tabernacled. That's Christ. And now we have the picture of it in the holiest of all of Israel's tabernacle. So shall we now just notice where this comes in. We are told in verse 10 that there was to be an ark made and in that ark the testimony, the stones of testimony were placed, verse 16. Then there was a mercy seat of pure gold placed upon it and verse 18 says, And thou shalt make two cherubim of gold 
a beaten work shalt thou make them, in the two ends of the mercy seat, and strictly speaking, of the matter of the mercy seat, not joined, not soldered, but beaten out so that the mercy seat and the cherubim were all one unbroken piece. That's a story for you, friends. Whatever the cherubim stand for, that is to say, the restoration of man's lost dominion, it is vitally one with redeeming love, the mercy seat. That's one thing. And make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub on the other end. Oh, this is what I ought to have made that statement about the matter of it in verse 19. Even of the matter of the mercy seat shall ye make the cherubim of the two ends thereof. And the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high covering. There's the next move. This anointed cherub covered. These cherubim are covering the mercy seat with their wings. And their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And that's just a little lesson for us, quite apart from the gigantic story we're considering. These cherubim look one to another because of both looking at the same thing. While they had their faces turned to the mercy seat, they couldn't help but be looking at one another, could they? Well, if you would only look to Christ, and I would only look to Christ, and all our other friends would only look to him, we'd all be looking one to another, wouldn't we? We haven't got to go around and make everybody like ourselves. We've got to go around and try to make everybody like him. And there's a little lesson, I think, that we could extract that without spoiling it. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testament that thou shalt give thee, and there will I meet with thee. The meeting place. The distance breached. The one who was driven out of the garden brought back. There will I meet with thee, and commune with thee, and speak with thee. Well, that's Israel's tabernacle in the wilderness. But we come on to the first of kings, to the time of Solomon, the sixth chapter. And we have here the date the building of the house of the king of Solomon. He goes on after that, as you'll see, coming on to chapter 7 and 8, we come to the building of the temple. And in the building of the temple, we have these cherubim. But instead of these cherubim being built of gold, they're made of olive wood. And they still shadow the mercy seat, but their wings reach out from side to side and join the whole place together under their protection. So we have the tabernacle in the wilderness, we have the temple in Solomon's reign, who was a son of David and a picture of the kingdom that's yet to come, great David's greater son. And then we have the kingdom that we've looked at in Ezekiel, when the glory of the Lord is restored, the temple 
once more the place of his glory and the last word is Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. So now we have the centre. Well now let's look at the way in which this patterns out. We have an aspiring cherub who was cast out as profane for making himself like God. We have paradise lost. Well we look down at the bottom and we know that in the book of the Revelation paradise is restored. I think perhaps it would be wise for us to make sure about these cherubim in the book of the Revelation, although I don't doubt but what you know they're there. We'll just notice chapter 4 that starts off the story of Revelation. And it says in verse 6, this rainbow circle throne, and before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. That's like you read in Ezekiel. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes before and behind. That's what I wondered about this lady who was able to see the cherubim when she went to her glorious home. I thought, well, it's like a frightful nightmare if you see many animals like that. It's more like a menagerie, isn't it? But that's not using them aright. This is symbolical. Eyes before and behind. Nothing can escape them. Omniscience. And the first living creature was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third like a man, the fourth like a flying eagle. So there they are. And they say, the next verse, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord, God Almighty, which was, and is, and is to come. And then at the end of the book of the Revelation, right through the dreadful day of the Lord and all its plagues, the deliverance has come, and we find verse chapter 22, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, and in the midst of the street of it, and either side of the river, was there the tree of life. So there it is. So the pledge that the garden that was lost has been kept by God for a garden that's restored. The tree that was forfeited is now accessible. And what a welter, what a welter of blood and tears has intervened between the loss of it and the restoring of it. And yet, that is the purpose of God. And one, one day, it will be achieved. But you're conscious, aren't you, as I was, that there's something missing in this structure, you see. If I'd have got this complete, I've got little snips here, but I haven't done it. That was blotted out. Just left one. I've got the balance of the paradise lost, I've got the paradise restored. I've got the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. I've got the dragon and the seed of the woman in Revelation 12. I've got the right of the tree of life and the emphasis upon the word of God, not tampering with it, not adding to it or taking away from it, because that's what the evil one did. He added to it, he took away from it in the garden, but there's a forbidding of adding to it or taking away from it in this section. So it's all complete, except I've got nothing to balance the first one. Nothing in the scripture that balances the cherub that was anointed and fell with a cherub that was anointed and didn't fall. I say nothing. Until I remember. Of course it's all in front of you. Christ is the true anointed, isn't he? But he's not called a cherub. 
But God saw to it that there was not three Gospels or five. Four. And we have testimony from the antiquity. I think it is Tatian who says, four Gospels have always been, and no more, no less. He wrote a diatessaron, that's the four, and that's come right down from all time. And these four Gospels have distinctive characteristics. Matthew is the Gospel of the King. I don't think there's much need to stop to drive that home. The King. Where is he that is born King of the Jews? His genealogy descends from Abraham and David and so on. Mark's Gospel is the Gospel of the Servant. Gives him no genealogy. You don't want a genealogy with a servant. You want to know that he'll do his work. That's all. So it starts straight off. Immediately. The Servant. Then you have Luke's Gospel takes the genealogy right back past Abraham to Adam. Man. Then you have John's Gospel. The Word. In the beginning was the Word. Four faces. A man, a lion, an ox, an eagle. The lion representing the king, Matthew. The patient ox, a picture in the scriptures, of the servant. The man, Adam the first, a picture of Adam the last. Then, the upper flying eagle, the type of picture of Christ as the Son of God. Now, is it true that he did just the very reverse from the aspiring blasphemy of one who said, I will set my throne above the stars I will be like the Most High. Do you remember the passage in Isaiah? Lucifer, oh Lucifer, son of the morning. Lucifer means a light bearer. Someone who was represented with, as marvellous light. Lucifer is Latin. Phosphorus is Greek. They both mean the same thing. L-U-C and P-H-O-S both mean light. And F-E-R and P-H-O-R both, both need to carry. So you have to transfer to carry over and transport to carry over means the same thing. We have this one that's there, Lucifer, son of the morning, saying, I will be like the Most High. And he fell. Will you turn then to that well-known and yet treasured passage, Philippians chapter 2, and read once again the very opposite. The very opposite of one who aspired to greatness and fell. Philippians 2, verse 3. I'm going to revise the translation straight away in verse 3 without explaining. You could look it up and test it for yourself afterwards. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem the things of others have more consequence than their own. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who originally existing as his right. This is not the verb to be. This is the word euparko which is translated in the noun form, goods and possessions. It was his. 
in an inalienable right, who originally being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be on equality with God. It was nothing for him to grasp at and hold, it was his. But made himself of no reputation, or strictly, literally, who emptied himself by taking upon him the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men. This is coming down for our sakes, not aspiring up. Instead of saying, I will be like the Most High, he was. But for our sakes he laid it aside, all what a contrast. And being found in fashion as a man, he went deeper still. It was a tremendous come down for the Son of God to be found in fashion as a man. You think of the difference between any man you know and God. But when he became a man, that was only halfway. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath also highly exalted him and graced him with the name which is above every name. And if you know your Bible, you know what that name is. The name Jehovah. And so it says that every tongue will one day confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the word. To the glory of God the Father. So there's a contrast between the aspiring serpent that fell and the lowly descent of the Son of God for our sakes. What a story. What I've done with it, I don't know. What it seems like to you, I can't guess. I'm only probing it. But I feel somehow I've got a beginning of a glimmer of it. That that cherubim in the Garden of Eden was there on purpose. It symbolised something. Something that touched the very spot and would soothe the sore hearts of Adam and Eve when they began to realise what they had done and what they had lost. Or would they not look up with thanksgiving, even in their distress, for that symbol? Look, a man there. Look at the dominion that we've lost, symbolised there. It's associated with that flaming fire and that turning sword and that tree of life and the promise of the seed of the woman that's going to bruise the serpent's head that's brought all this about. And then they died. And their successors died. And they went on generation after generation. But friends, at long last, it will come. The pledge of the cherubim will be redeemed. There will be a most glorious restoration. And ultimately, as we know, all enemies will be put down. And God will be all in all. Now you won't go away and say, oh, that's the end of that. And we know all about the cherubim because I should have missed my way if that's the case. You'll say, we've just began to have a glimmer of an idea as to what it means. Now then, if you have the time and the opportunity, look at all the passages. Look at the details that are given. Don't think any of them are added in merely for effect. They've all have got a purpose. And if you can come to me at some time and say, you know what those rings are? Oh, I shall be thankful. And if you know what the wheels within the wheels are, I shall be grateful. But if you can't, don't worry. For we've got all eternity in front of us to learn the reason why many of these things 
which it may not be possible for us to fully enter into now. But would you take away with you the comfort, at least, that God had a purpose, that no no antagonism of the serpent could finally frustrate, that every time the serpent made his move and brought about desolation, God sometimes didn't pick up the bishop or the knight or the rook, but he picked up a little pawn and said, now what are you going to do? He takes the wise in his own craftiness. The rest he restrains. And ultimately, that one that stoops so low is going to be recognised as king of kings and lord of lords and ruler of princes and we shall be then united with him and understand as we shall, as we may not now, what the cherubim stood for. So if that lady is disappointed which you may not see them, I hope that when we both meet together up there we shall say, it's alright, we've got the reality of what the cherubim was intended to teach.